This is Earth Files, the award-winning news site with the latest updates in science, environment, and real X-Files. Podcasting in-depth reports beyond the 6 o'clock news by Emmy Award-winning journalist Linda Moulton Howe. Hi, everyone. Well, tonight I have both chocolate and fluffy. It's an arm load of fur in love. And chocolate is saying, I'm going to get down. That's all right. I like him to do what they want to do. What he wants to do, I know, is just before we turn on the lights, both of these cats were downstairs at the uh, screen door and there was a moth. And that's where he's headed because they started pouncing on the moth. And cats, they are really good at that. And they got one moth down and there's another moth down there. That's why chocolate's going down there. And Fluffy will join him. But uh, before I put him down, dear, dear boy that he is, um, that what it reminded me of as I stood there watching them pounce on those, uh, well, trying to get one moth and getting the first one, was why are we in a universe where everything has to eat something else in order to survive? Always gets me. It seems like a profound mystery. Now, we're going to say goodbye to you. You can go down and play with the moths with chocolate. And I'm going to talk with these people about some mysteries. Now, from the first broadcast of my television documentary, A Strange Harvest, on May 25, 1980, for the CBS station in Denver, Colorado, I received hundreds of calls and letters from people saying that they had firsthand knowledge about the alien presence on Earth. And one of those calls came in 1988. It's a long time ago from a professional meteorologist who worked at the White Sands Missile Range in southern New Mexico. And he had seen my documentary, A Strange Harvest. And he wanted me to know that one of his colleagues who worked in the Naval Research Lab down at White Sands had told him that since the early 1970s, the United States has had at least one secret base on Mars underground in a volcanic lava tube. He said we had help from friendly ETs to spray the Martian lava tube with a substance that sealed it off from the Martian atmosphere. And then an Earth-like atmosphere was pumped into the sealed-off lava tube for a ready-made Earth military base on Mars. And that was 32 years ago. Now look at this headline in Live Science released this week on Monday, May 11th. Quote, These lava tubes could be the safest place for explorers to live on Mars. Every part of Mars could kill you. Its surface is arid, starved of oxygen, and blasted daily with unrelenting, unfiltered solar radiation. So there are potential advantages to life in lava tubes on Mars. 
seal them off, and it might be possible to pressurize them and warm them up to create livable environments much larger than what a rocket could haul from Earth. Close quote, now in this year. This is happening. So now let's go from Mars underground to Earth underground and into the mystery of the big dark pyramid in Alaska. Even though no one has ever given me a specific latitude and longitude, let's look at this large map scanned from an Encyclopedia Britannica atlas where the original distance ratio was 1 to 6 million. Huge map. The red circles start with Anchorage on the lower right up to Fairbanks in the upper right. And then when you are in Fairbanks, to give you some orientation, if you come a little south and west, you come to Mount McKinley. It's now renamed Denali. It is the highest mountain peak in North America with a summit elevation of 20,310 feet above sea level. And now see that little white triangle in the purple circle. That was not placed there by me. That purple and white pyramid glyph came from a remote viewer a few years ago who looked for the dark pyramid. So this purple and white stands for the all-black dark pyramid. At this large computer screen scale, the distance between the red Mount McKinley circle and the purple circle with the triangle on it is about 60 to 70 miles from Mount McKinley, which is what military and science sources have said. The purple circle and triangle represents one possible location for the underground dark pyramid. Some sources say it was discovered by planes and helicopters experiencing magnetic anomalies flying over the region of wherever this pyramid is about a decade after the end of World War II, and we're going to hear about one of those accounts. And now I'm looking at the distant early warning line symbol. And this came about when the United States began to plan and construct a series of radars from Alaska through the Arctic, and it became known as the dew line because that stood for distant early warning line of radars. Its purpose was to monitor for any planes or rockets coming over the North Pole from an enemy such as Russia. Well, at the same time, to back up its dew line operations, the U.S. began building the White Alice communication system to provide the U.S. Air Force a telecommunication link in Alaska. That was done with the scientific and engineering help of Western Electric that would evolve to become AT&T's Bell Laboratories. And tonight, I'll share with you one Western Electric engineer's firsthand information about the Dark Pyramid. There have been several sources who say the big black underground pyramid is about 60 miles west of Mount McKinley, now Denali, and on a straight line bearing to Nome, Alaska, further west. 
The base of the dark pyramid is supposed to be 700 feet down from the land surface. The top of the dark pyramid, the vertex, is described as 150 feet from the surface. So that would mean if you dug down from the surface and you hit the top point of the pyramid, that would be the top of the dark pyramid. And that if you take that from 150 from 700, that would mean the dark pyramid is 550 feet high. Now, let's compare that to the Great Giza Pyramid in Cairo, Egypt. This stands 455 feet high. So if the measurements given by alleged eyewitnesses are correct, the Dark Pyramid in Alaska is 100 feet higher than Cheops. Its base starting at 700 feet below ground. And here is what a U.S. Navy Huey helicopter pilot delivering cargo to a U.S. military operation at the Dark Pyramid site in the spring of 1978 allegedly said to a fellow Navy man who told his son, who told me, quote, This is as super secret a situation as the Manhattan Project was. Nobody is supposed to know this place even exists. This thing is some kind of power generator, and it's thousands of years old. It's made out of stone like a pyramid." Close quote. If the pyramid stone is all black as described, it might be basalt, like the huge black basalt structures two miles underneath the ice in Antarctica, described to me by Navy SEAL Spartan 1 in my Antarctica documentary. Black basalt comes from volcanic lava and is one of the densest, hardest rock materials on our planet. Continuing with the Navy man's revelation to his son to me, quote, Investigators don't know where the underground pyramid came from, who made it, or how it works but it can generate enough energy to power the whole North Slope, all of Alaska, and probably the whole country of Canada. That's how much juice it puts out. They don't have a clue where it came from, and it is deep underground, close quote. How did this all start for me? Well, I go back to my trip to Gobekli Tepe, in Turkey. And I was there uh, in June of 2012 to visit the highly strange Gobekli Tepe rings of 20 feet tall and 10 to 20 ton each limestone pillars that were dotted with strange stone animals and totems and humanoids. Gobekli Tepe was built 12,000 years ago, according to German archaeologist Klaus Schmidt. And then, a thousand years later, the pattern of more than 300 huge, heavy limestone pillars were completely buried inside a hill near San Lurfa, Turkey, about six miles from the Syrian border. After returning from Turkey on June 15, 2012, I reported on Coast Radio 
news about exploring both the once buried Gobekli Tepe and going deep down into one of the largest underground cities known in this world, and the name is Der Ankuyu. So the theme in my radio broadcast had been what happened to cause Gobekli Tepe to be buried and for the ancient Turks to have gone so deep underground. That radio report about huge ancient underground architecture is what provoked retired U.S. Army counterintelligence warrant officer Douglas Allen Mutchler to email me on June 22, 2012, after I had gotten back and had done the report on the radio. He gave me permission to use his full name, and he wanted me to know about a large pyramid structure supposedly found by seismologists and geophysicists studying the Earth's crust during the May 22, 1992 underground nuclear detonation test by China of a one megaton bomb. Physicists used the underground vibrations from the atomic bomb explosion to see, so to speak, underground in a specific area of Alaska. Now here is the first email to me from Douglas Mutchler, dated June 22, 2012, to me at erfiles at com. Hello, my name is Douglas Mutchler. The CW2 stands for his uh, rank when he was a Chief Warrant II officer in the U.S. Army. And he said, and during my service tour in Alaska, I was informed of a pyramid under the land in Alaska. There is other information concerning this that came to my attention after it was reported to us in 1992. It was, in fact, the month of November that he heard. I have tried to pass this information to others, but have not heard any response to my information. I assure you, I am telling you the truth about this, and I think that this is being kept quiet by our government, as the news was buried the very next day after it was brought to my attention. He included his phone number in his email, and I asked him to send me his DD-214 discharge information, military photographs and information about his service as a Chief Warrant II officer in the U.S. Army Counterintelligence. Doug Mutchler mailed me the following DD-214 that I'm going to show you, and we can go to that right now. This is a real DD-214, and everybody who has ever served in the United States military should have one. And I always ask, and I always black out things like the Social Security number. But when Douglas Mutchler and I set a phone time to talk, and we did it by phone saying, uh, tomorrow at X time, neither of us could reach the other person on repeated dials of otherwise fine working phones, leaving us convinced in June of 2012 that already before we even did an interview, someone did not want retired Chief Warrant to Officer Doug Mutchler to talk with investigative reporter Linda Moulton Howe, especially if they 
thought that the subject was the Dark Pyramid in Alaska. Here's a little background. Douglas Allen Mutchler was born on February 7, 1957 and graduated from Tecumseh High School in New Carlisle, Ohio in 1976. And by June 30th of 1989, he had completed the U.S. Army Warrant Officer Entry Course at Fort Rucker, Alabama. His basic training was at Fort McClellan there in Alabama. And he was requested to join the advanced training for an experimental counterintelligence unit known there as 97 Bravo 10 with the goal of increasing the number of human intelligence agents. Advanced training was in Fort Huachuca in Arizona at the U.S. Army Intelligence Center. And then Doug requested duty at then Fort Richardson in Anchorage, Alaska, now known today as the Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson, where he worked as a warrant officer from 1989 to 1995, and he encountered the unexpected. <coughs> With all of his intelligence training, he was blocked when he wanted to solve the mystery of an underground pyramid near Mount McKinley in Denali National Park. Well, as a past intelligence operative and knowing how the government works, they're covering something. But something's up there, and somebody is hiding it. Now let's go forward with the story that appears to be so sensitive that extra effort is being made to block us. So now, would you go back, as I understand, that you are working counterintelligence as a warrant officer, CW2, and that you were in Anchorage, Alaska, at Fort Richardson, and we are beginning this story in 1989. I asked to go to Alaska as my first duty station as a warrant officer because my dad was stationed there, and he loved the place. I went there, and when I arrived, one of the first things I did was go and get maps because I wanted to prospect. So I went to the GSA office, and I picked up every map that made up Alaska. They were the Joint Operation Graphic Ground Maps scale 1 to 250,000, and it covered the whole bedroom wall and the ceiling. <laughs> I mean, these are really detailed maps, and I got the one of them that was on the western portion of the state, and it was whited out. There was a whole section about the size of a Christmas card, and it said, this area not surveyed as of this date. And the first thing I thought was, that's ridiculous. They've had the Earth mapped since like the 60s. And I know Alaska was mapped out right after World War II. It didn't make sense for this to be whited out. They're hiding something. <laughs> There's something there. But I had no need to know. Then I'm out processing 1992. And we're sitting there. It was in late November early December, and I'm sitting there in the orderly room with about 40 other people, and we were waiting for the last formation of the day, and we're watching a TV news program, and they started talking about this uh, Chinese detonation of an underground nuclear bomb, 
that was sent off earlier that year. May 22nd, 1992. Okay. And they were talking about that, how big it was. And then there was a byline. And the story was about geologists around the world had been informed through the UN because China had told the UN they were going to do this. And so these geologists got together and they said, let's get the best recordings of the Earth's crust and mantle using the vibrations from this explosion. And what they found in this byline story was under Alaska, they found a pyramid bigger than the one in Egypt. They said they didn't know whether it was solid or hollow. They couldn't tell that. But they had the distinct outline of a pyramid. And this was supposed to be where? That whited-out area, the uh, area that showed on the TV, were south of Mount McKinley, and it was towards the west near the Nome area. There's an area there that was whited out, quite a large area, really. And when I saw the uh, news program, I mean, in my mind's eye, I could see it just right where the whiteout area was. I knew that the whole world has been surveyed. So why was this whited out? It didn't make any sense. I was like, oh, man, i got to get this tonight. So I went home, and I got a recorder and set it up. No story. I called home, the lower 48, to my dad. And he religiously, my, <laughs> my dad is a TV hound, especially a news hound, morning, noon, evening, and 11 o'clock. He watches them all. He heard nothing about it, not a thing. I mean, it's a big story bigger than the one in Egypt, and it's not being covered in lower 48. Meaning, as if, either there was some block on the story getting into the United States, or the story had been picked up only by the local Channel 13 station in Anchorage. That's the only thing I could come up with myself. But the thing is, I went the next day to the station and asked if I could get a copy of that story. And I was talking to the general manager, asking for it. And he said, what story? We didn't run a story about no pyramid. And I was like, sure you did. (laughs) There's 40 of us guys, and they watched it on TV. And he denied it ever running. And I, I was just perplexed. Knowing what I know, I thought to myself, this guy's been got to. He's covering. I mean, it's the only thing that could be. And what you mean is that the United States government, when push comes to shove and the Department of Defense says that something is sensitive, they can interact with management in TV stations or networks and say, don't run that story. They do it all the time. Yes. That's a matter of record. So I was walking out and there was a technician and he was sitting there staring at me. And the way he acted, he's like, come here, you know. (laughs) And I I walked over and I said, can you help me with this? He goes, man, we ran that, but I can't get it for you. It's gone. I can't help you. But it ran. I was mad. I went back to the office in formation that night. I told everybody what I'd found out. And the guys in the unit were like, wait a minute, we watched it. What do you mean they didn't run it? (laughs) You know, the same thing I was saying.
So I have tried to find that news program, and somebody out there has to have been recording their kid's ball game or wrestling match or something, you know, and they've got it. Somebody has to have it. I'd love to get it because I want to find out where those grid coordinates are. What happened about a year later in 1993 when you went to Fort Meade? Okay, I was going through a lot of operations during this period of time. Uh, I was a commander at Fort Leonard Wood. We were working on terrorism around that area. It was a thing we were working with the FBI. So part of my job was to go to Fort Meade where they have storehouses of information. I'll just put it that way. Everybody listening, and myself included, when they hear Fort Meade, they automatically think of the National Security Agency. Is that where you were? Uh, No. It's a building that is an SCI type of building, special compartment and information. I don't want to get into the name of the, the building or who runs it, but it is a military thing. It's just a big warehouse where they have rows and rows and rows and rows of combination safes. So it's an archive for highly classified sensitive material. Right. I was looking for what I was looking for. And then when I was done, I thought, maybe they have something about this pyramid. So I went to the, I guess it would be like a librarian, and I asked him if he had anything on archaeological sites. I didn't say pyramid, but I said archaeological sites or underground facilities in Alaska. He said, well, if we do, it might be in container X, Y, or Z. So I went over there, and I was just looking around, and I really didn't find anything saying pyramid, but I grabbed a couple of Alaska, like two different safes. And I had just sat down, and these two guys came. You know, you can feel someone standing behind you. And these two goons go, Hey, you don't have a need to know for that information. And I turned around and said, what do you mean? You don't have a need to know. You don't have to leave. I'm just looking for something. We know what you're looking for. And the other guy, he goes, they don't want us messing with them up there anymore. They don't want you messing with them up there. They don't want us, anybody, messing with them. Up there. And the guy who was standing with him, the bigger guy, his head just shot over, and he looked at his partner. He was just glaring at him. And I was thinking, what did he just tell me? They don't want any of us messing with them anymore? Up there, right? And up there, yeah. from where you were at Fort Meade in Maryland would be... Alaska. The folder I had was Alaska. Doug Mutchler kept remembering that large, white-out area on that high-resolution map that he had had at Fort Richardson. And it didn't make sense because he knew that everything in Alaska had been surveyed since World War II. And the area that he remembered seeing whited out on his map was between Mount McKinley, now Denali, and going west toward Nome. He remembered that, again, consistent with several of these descriptions and maps that have been set my way. 
And after reporting my recorded interview with Doug Mutchler on Coast to Coast AM radio the night of July 26th to 27th of 2012, about eight years ago, I asked listeners and Earth Files viewers to contact me by email with any relevant information on or off the record. And right after that broadcast, an email came from a 46-year-old man living in Omaha, Nebraska. He said that he was the adopted son of a retired Western Electric engineer. And the engineer told his adopted son that he had worked between 1959 and 1961 on a powerful electrical system that emanated from a very large pyramid of unknown origin deep underground in Alaska. Well, he sent me his father's Western Electric Company identification card. It was 1915 Western Electric Manufacturing was incorporated in New York City, New York as a wholly owned subsidiary of AT&T under the name Western Electric Company, Inc. And Bell Labs was half owned by Western Electric. He sent me a photograph of his father's life membership pin in the Telephone Pioneers of America organization in 1930. Telephone Pioneers of America was founded in Boston all the way back to 1911 with 734 members, including Alexander Graham Bell, who received membership card number one. AT&T's Henry Pope wanted to inspire the science and technology of telephones for those scientists and engineers devoted to the industry. And here now is the son, he asked me to call him John Smith, talking about his Western Electric engineer father's extraordinary work at the base of a huge dark black pyramid with its base 700 feet below the surface in Alaska, not far from Mount McKinley, now Mount Denali, in the years 1959 to 1961. I was listening to Coast to Coast, and I heard the story by Doug Mudgeley, and I was really shocked because my father had told me a lot of stories after his time in the war when he worked in Alaska. And apparently this was some top secret thing. From what year to what year? It was 1959 through 1961. In your email, you said after finishing college degrees, he was, quote, recruited by the military to join a group of other experts to study and work at an underground structure in Alaska that in his words they called the Dark Pyramid. Yeah, and sometimes he called it the Dark Pyramid and sometimes he would call it the Black Pyramid. And what he had told me about it was that he was recruited to go out there. By what unit of the military? I don't know if it was through the Navy or who it was through. But I know that they had some kind of deal set up with Western Electric. They had taken some of these people and recruited them, and then my mom always said she had to keep it a secret. What he did? Yeah. She told everybody that he was overseas. And then he was approached at Western Electric by representatives from some military branch in the United States? To the best of my knowledge, that is how it happened. 
he said that he flew to Alaska and he landed in Unicleet and from Unicleet they were on a military bus with blacked out windows. He wore a compass around his neck that my mom had given him. And he said that they headed from that point mostly east from Unicleet. And they weren't supposed to know where they were going or anything. Your father knew that for a fact because he was watching the compass around his neck? That's correct. Well, when they started northeast, did he ever say where they ended up? He said it was about a six-hour drive altogether. Could you tell me if he described how many men were with him in that bus? Well, he said it was a full bus. I know when they got there, they had something set up. He said it wasn't tense, but it wasn't that far from it. And they had him in there, and they had about a four-week period where they went through orientation. And then he started working on this project. Where did your father work, and what else did he tell you in detail? They had elevator shafts that went down. My father would always say when we'd complain about doing farm work and stuff that if we only knew what it was like working 700 feet under the ground, then we wouldn't be complaining. Well, did he ever give details about what it was like at 700 feet underground? He worked in an enclosed room. They had elevator shafts. He said they were more like mining shafts, you know, where they'd close the gate up in front of you and they'd drop you down. And once he was at the bottom, then they'd have the rooms down on the corners. Apparently, he always said they were on the corners of where this structure was. And he worked in the enclosed building. He worked on a corner of the underground structure that they called the Dark Pyramid? Yes. He said that the corners of the structures face northeast, southeast, southwest, and northwest. Are you describing the base of a pyramid? Yes. And another thing that was kind of funny is when he built this house out here in 1971, he built it, and it faces the same way. He made the driveway longer and turned his house crooked. (laughs) Did he explain why that placement was important? No, he never did, but I kind of figured it out later when he had me working on some little projects of his. From the time I was 12, I've been working on a farm, and he had me work on an aluminum structure that he created that he could convert like a low volt into a higher voltage. And it was all aluminum? The structure was aluminum. We couldn't use steel, and he was always adamant about 48-degree angle. Where? from the angle of the pyramid structure that he built, from the corner to the point. The point of the pyramid up above. Right. Did he ever imply what that extra three degrees might mean above 45? No, I have no idea, but I know that he could take a 110-volt generator and could hook it up, and it would go through a series of wires to each of the corners of it, and he would put these converted electric motors at the end of them, and when he'd run the voltage through it, he could run enough to run our entire house, the farm, everything. He said he could multiply energy. How did he explain what this dark pyramid structure was? Where did it come from? Who made it? I don't know anything about where it came from. And he said he knew it was pyramidal shaped, and he didn't know if there was an interior to it or if it was made out of stone or whatever. All he knew was that they were using the angles of it to distribute energy. 
How big was the pyramidal structure? They had shafts that went down, and he said he was 700 feet under the ground. Where did your father suggest that 700 feet down was in relationship to the whole pyramidal structure? That was at the base at the corners. That would suggest that the pyramid underground was perhaps how tall? He said he was 700 feet under, and then when they were 700 feet down, that was the vertical shaft, and then there was also horizontal shafts that led to the corners. And did he ever go in a horizontal shaft directly into whatever was at each of those pyramidal corners? Yes, he did. At the end of those, there was another room. I know he worked in there. And the conduits that were leading from the room that your father was personally in, in one of the pyramid corners, where did those conduits go? Those led straight into the corner of the structure. If he's coming down in an elevator down 700 feet, right? when the elevator opens up, is he outside the corner of the pyramid or inside? No, he is in a some kind of room. He said they had bunks there where they could sleep and kind of a bunkhouse. And they had a kitchen and, and then they had a control room and then a hallway that led out of there to the corner of the structure. He'd said that they were cement hallways, nothing fancy or carpeted or anything like that, just cement hallways. And he'd go from the main control room. He said it was like an electronic room. They had, like, glass transformers or insulators of some kind in there, and it was just kind of a electronic control room. And did he ever suggest that he had been briefed about the relationship of that electronic control room to the rest of the pyramid? Well, he knew that they were working on some kind of energy distribution or acceleration, and he knew that they were trying to get energy to go through the corners and up through the middle and try to accelerate that energy. In your email, you said, quote, In his later years, he would always complain when receiving his electric bill that it would be free if we knew the truth. Yeah. He said that even if it wasn't free, it should be pennies. And he talked about Tesla. He felt there was a way to distribute energy that would be free. Did your dad ever describe in any way what agency of the government he worked for? Well, I know he was working for the higher-ups. I've seen papers, correspondence from Pentagon. I know he was working for some pretty high-up people in the government. He used to bring home envelopes that even through the 80s that would be confidential. And we knew better than to go through any of his papers. When was the last month and year that you know for a fact that your father was making these trips down the 700-foot elevator and walking into that electronic base of that pyramid? Well, I know they went down there for a week at a time, and then they would have two days off. And the last time would be sometime in 1961. You know, when I heard your story on Coast to Coast, and it shocked me that there was somebody talking about the same thing that my dad had talked about. Do you remember what your father said specifically about Tesla's work? Well, I know that he compared Tesla's work to fractals. And he also said that a pyramid shape was the perfect structure to create fractals. How does that relate to electricity? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I think it had something to do with the fractals somehow enhancing the energy. 
What would have been your father's bottom line about his knowing that he had worked on an underground pyramid that was large and could generate so much energy that the world wouldn't have to be paying much for power? He thought if we had some kind of a network where you could transfer energy from one source to another. Did your father ever hint that the pyramid underground in Alaska where he worked could have been constructed by something from outer space? Well, he never said so. I know I've asked him, and he said he didn't know. So when you have asked him over the years whether the pyramid in Alaska was made by creatures from outer space, he has always told you he didn't know. He says that it was technology that was completely unknown at the time, and he didn't know where the technology came from. He had his little part, and then other people had their parts, and I think they kept him a little in the dark. But your father said to you that he was working on technology of a completely unknown source. Absolutely. That would suggest, don't you think, that something non-human from someplace else in the cosmos built that pyramid underground in Alaska? Well, it makes me wonder, because my dad, one thing he said is, whatever you say, that's your word, and I know whatever he told me were all true stories. And on September 3rd, 2012, I received a long email from yet another son about his father's firsthand knowledge of an underground pyramid approximately two hours east of Unicaliclete by Huey Helicopter in the late April or early May 1978 timeframe. The son gave me permission to use his full real name, Bruce L. Pearson. Bruce is Chief Executive Officer for BroadcastVenue.com and does reporting for HD Media Production in Clinton, New Jersey. His father, joined the U.S. Navy right after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and served on patrol torpedo, uh, torpedo boat 492 during World War II, which was 80 feet long and could speed at 41 knots. PT boats were built in three different sizes of torpedo-armed fast attack craft used by the United States Navy in World War II to attack larger surface ships. PT is the U.S. hull classification symbol for patrol torpedo. American soldiers nicknamed the PT boat squadrons the Mosquito Fleet because of their smaller, faster abilities, but the Japanese called them devil boats. Bruce Pearson's father received a February 19, 1946 typed thank you letter for his war service signed in ink by then Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal. Later in the mid-1970s, Bruce Pearson's parents applied to teach in Alaska and moved to Unicaliet in 1976. Two years later, in late April or early May of 1978, Bruce's father met a U.S. Air Force pilot in Unicaliet who had also had PT boat experience. They exchanged some war stories, and the pilot asked Bruce's father if he would like to ride with him and his co-pilot on a classified delivery mission out a couple of hours from Unicaliet and back. The pilot stressed 
They could not even land the pilot, the helicopter for a rest. And it would be just unload heavy cargo, refuel, and leave. And next is Bruce Pearson from New Jersey to share secondhand his father's remarkable helicopter ride that day to what might have been the actual site of the underground dark pyramid. My father had related to me where he had been talking to these guys that came in to fuel up on their way out of Unilaquit on some parts delivery mission. I guess they hit it off, and he said, look, you're not scheduled, but I got a slot if you want to take a ride out with us and come on back. He assumed when he told my mom he was going to go on this flight with him that it was out to a dew line installation. But when he got in the chopper, the guy said, no, this isn't dew line. He said, this is some weird installation. And then he said, well, what do you mean weird? He said, well, it's underground. And the co-pilot, he said, look, this is some generating facility or something that's underground. And he said, well, what's it, just a nuclear power plant? And he said, no, it's not nuclear. It's nothing we built. It's thousands of years old. It's cut stone like a pyramid. It's 150 feet below ground, and they can't figure out what the hell it is. Hmm. So he said, look, this is all off the record. I'm not even supposed to know this, but this is what I was told, that this thing will put out enough power to power the whole North Slope, the whole state of Alaska, and he said, this thing could power the entire country of Canada. That's how much juice it puts out, and they don't have a clue where it came from, and it's underground. So they had three aluminum stainless steel-looking cases They flew out in a helicopter, and I believe it was a Huey, but they were escorted by a fixed-wing aircraft that never landed. And my dad said you could see them every once in a while, or 1,000, 2,000 feet above them, just making S-curves, you know, so they wouldn't run away from the chopper. He said, and I really don't have any idea why that fixed-wing aircraft is following us all the way out there. I guess in case we crash, they'll know where to send people to pick up the pieces. They flew out about two hours east, my dad said, of Unilaclete, Did your father ever detail exactly where he thought this place was? He said it was in the middle of nowhere, but he said they didn't change course throughout the whole flight, pretty much due east of Unilaclete. My father said he was so heavy that when he sat down, the skid spread out. He flew enough in choppers. He said he knew the thing was working pretty hard the whole way out, and they were on fumes when they got out there. And I said, well, what would this place look like? He goes, there was the tundra, there was a blockhouse, and a fuel dump, and like a motor pool shed, a garage for vehicles. He said they had a snowcat, and he could see a couple other vehicles. And then off to the side, there was a couple of mine shaft elevators. He said there was a couple of these gantries sticking out of the tundra, and they all had elevated guardhouses on them, and they had electrical razor wire fence around them. And they said, electrified fencing, do not approach or something. He said, man, there was a lot of firepower around there, and they didn't have 50 calibers on their Jeeps to shoot polar bears. You know, they had them trained on us when we landed. The fixed-wing aircraft kept circling overhead, and these guys all had black uniforms with no insignias on. He said, I know they were military uniforms, but even the pilot said, I don't even know who these guys are with. Probably spooks is what he said. Figuring they were CIA or whatever. But here's the creepy part. He goes, we got about five miles from the place, and the co-pilot said to me, now listen, things are going to get a little bizarre. We were told that all our instruments are going to go crappy, and we have to go VFR. 
visual flight rules instead of instrument. So he said, don't panic. You're going to hear alarms going off maybe and all kinds of stuff, but we're just going to fly VFR. So sure enough, he said, all of a sudden, the major, who was the pilot, said, here we go, boys. My father, sitting in the back, looked over between the two seats, he said, and the entire radar screen went completely green. So all the trace went off the radar. Power alarm went off. Horns are going. And the co-pilot said, no worry, everything's under control. They took it off autopilot, and they were flying it manually and had visual contact for the ground. They were only 500 or 1,000 feet up, he said. But all the electronics went haywire. He said he could see the artificial horizon just flip-flopping. And he said the compass was spinning like 50 miles an hour, so there was no compass heading. Everything was bizarre. The lights were out like they had lost their generators, and they were still flying. He must have had some power to it, whether it was running off batteries or whatever. And they landed. Nobody got out of the aircraft. Six guys came in to pull these three cases off. Nobody said anything. Nobody signed anything. They fueled them up with a tank behind a Jeep, he said, but fueled up when the engine's running and reengaged the rotors and off they went. Doesn't it sound like the crew on this helicopter had done this before? It's an interesting thought. Either that or they believed whoever briefed them not to worry about it. When they landed, they have these three machined heavy cases in the helicopter. Yes. Six men in black uniforms that are unidentified come and they take out these three cases. And then the pilot remains on the ground with the engine running while somebody goes to a Jeep, gets fuel from the back and puts it into the helicopter while it's still running. He said it was a trailer behind a Jeep, which had a pump on it. And while the thing was running, they pumped it into the fuel tank. That's not standard procedure, I can tell you that. And on the ground, they had military guns. Oh, they all had guns. He said they were armed to the teeth. They were in front of people who had armaments aimed at them the whole time the refueling was going on, correct? Yeah, he said there's a guy standing in the back of a Jeep with a 50 caliber mount pointed at the helicopter. That 50 caliber machine gun could have taken that helicopter down? Oh, in two seconds. Okay. And above the whole scene was something like a C-130 that was rotating above? That is correct. The whole time. I said to my dad, so they're standing there with a 50 cal pointing at you? He says, yeah. I even said to the major, whose side are we on here? Who the hell are these guys? He didn't say a word. The mine shaft elevators at this remote place had razor wire around them in addition to all the people with guns. Yeah, electrified razor wire. He says, well, I don't think it was to keep polar bears from falling down the hole. I can tell you that. Electrified fence, do not approach. Did your father ever give you any more details about where he thought this location was? He did say, we went for a long ways. He said, we couldn't have been that far away from McKinley. Could you repeat what the pilot of that helicopter said to your father about what he and his co-pilot knew underneath that ground? He told my dad, quote, this is as super secret a situation as the Manhattan Project was. He said, nobody is supposed to know this place even exists. And, quote, this thing is some kind of power generator, and it's thousands of years old, It's made out of stone like a pyramid, 
They don't know where it came from, who made it, or how it works, but it could generate enough power to power the whole North Slope, all of Alaska, and probably the whole country of Canada. And he said, we're not even supposed to know what we're delivering. And here's part two of this, Linda, as I related in the email. Six years later, over lunch with the chief engineer of the television studio at Bell Labs in Murray Hill, talking about vacation, and the guy says, oh, yeah, a bunch of guys from the labs in Western got recruited by somebody in the government to go up to the North Slope to look at some power-generating station they couldn't figure out. And if there is a stone pyramid that is maybe twice the size of Cheops underground in Alaska, at least 150 feet down to the vertex and down to 700 feet to the base, and that it has been built thousands of years ago, according to what the pilots had heard, and that it can generate enough energy to power the nation of Canada. What is the relationship between that stone pyramid underground in Alaska and Cheops and all of the pyramids that have been built around this planet, many of which are allegedly underground for reasons unknown, or at least under dirt for reasons unknown? Who built all of these pyramids? And if they were machines for energy, why is it that our government wouldn't allow all of this pyramid energy to be used on this planet? I think that that's the $64,000 question. It's a little hard to believe we have these blips in the development of knowledge of mankind. You go from the Israelites wandering around in the desert and subsistence living to society that can build structures that we can't even emulate today with all our technology. And then we drop back into the Dark Ages. You know, I don't think that society is nonlinear like that. To me, that on its surface says there's something not right. How can you have the mass structures in the Yucatan and the Mayans, the Aztecs, and then it goes back to barely scratching out a living and having not enough knowledge to feed yourself? That doesn't make sense. And what you mean is that the very nature of high intelligence and high technology as it is even seen in Gobekli Tepe in Turkey 12,000 years ago, and the pyramids and the stone circles around the planet imply that some other intelligence that is not Homo sapien has been working on this planet, terraforming and building these structures for their means, their agendas, completely separate from the evolving track of Homo sapien. Yes. Why, Linda, is it so impossible and so improbable and so inconceivable that we were colonized here for the exact same reasons that we are currently discussing colonizing another planet, Mars. For some reason, for a very long time, the power greed structure of this planet, which in and of itself might not be entirely human, seems to have had a self-interest in keeping the general evolving human population from knowing the truth. That is where we are in 2012. Policies of denial are still in place from World War II. And until those policies of denial are officially lifted, scenes, as your father described, two hours east of Unalakleet, Alaska, in the mid-1970s, will keep occurring on this planet while people are still told we are alone in the universe. 
you couldn't be more correct. And that's why I came forward. I have run into so many pilots that have said to me in the last 25 years that I've been in cockpits, look, you know what? I got 13,000 hours. I flew B-24s in World War II. I'm ready to retire. And I really don't give a flip if you believe me or not. I know what I saw. And quite frankly, somebody needs to hear this before I take a dirt nap. So sooner or later, the tide will turn because the volume of documented evidence that folks like you have gone out on a limb and fought to bring to the public's attention will turn the tide. If any of you out there around the world have any firm, definite knowledge from firsthand maybe work or uh, from somebody that you know for sure has firsthand knowledge about the latitude and longitude of the big dark pyramid deep underground in Alaska. I sure would like to well, make some kind of a confidential arrangement to get that latitude or longitude. Uh, it could come through FedEx and that would be a fast and easy and firm way. And uh, the whole point would be if I could get a firm latitude and longitude, uh, the money that it would take to possibly do further investigations of a scientific nature wouldn't be wasted on a hunt. That's why I've always put out this request. If anybody has a latitude and longitude and they definitely know that that dark pyramid is underneath that latitude longitude, if you can get it to me, I will always, always respect and keep confidential any requests for anonymity. Um, so I hope that tonight with this in-depth dive that some of you who had never heard about this story or had heard any of these interviews that I had done uh, back in 2012 now understand why the Dark Pyramid in Alaska has been something sort of haunting because it seems very uh, substantive in a strange way. Very much in also what I've experienced with the uh, large architectures deep under the ice in Antarctica. And they both are like these bookends in my work and my life. The Dark Pyramid in Alaska and who knows how many pyramids and huge architectures under the deep ice of Antarctica and the question were they all built by the same intelligence. Now I want to smile and I want to give you guys an electronic digital digital hug in this time of COVID because this week we broke through 14,000 subscribers. I think we're 14,100 or something. 100, I'm just getting it from Brad. 140,140 new subscriber, subscribers. And I want to keep going because I really want to have that experience of being with all of you uh, and going for two hours with all of your questions with champagne. We're going to have champagne, which means we'll have champagne here and it'll be in this space 
And then wherever all you are, in whichever hemisphere, whichever country, wherever you are, you have champagne. And we will raise glasses and celebrate 150,000 subscribers to Earth Files and celebrate that night two hours of questions. I think I can keep going for two hours on questions because I have uh, experienced a lot in this life so far and my one of my greatest joys is being able to share it with all of you and keep learning it, this to me this coming together in this village of earth files it feels like that we are all together because we want to learn about the mysteries of the universe and the cosmos and our own planet's relationship clearly to other intelligences going back for eons and even now. And so with that Peggy, I am so thrilled that we have broken through 14,000 or 140,000 and that we can keep going. Uh, you help stay in touch with uh, everybody on all matters. And I will finish out tonight's deep dive into the Dark Pyramid of Alaska with, let's take a couple of questions, Peggy. Hi, Linda. That was a wonderful report, by the way. Oh, thank you. First, I'd love to thank our Super Chats tonight. So, Moonbird, Lana Jane, Rachel, David Goodridge, Susan Seltzer, Mary Kelly, Hoku, Aragon, Mylena69, Brown Blood, Alex Dees, Kiki, Dombrowski, Isabella, Rachel Daly Hug, The Rabbit Monk, Eric Ackerley, Thomas Herschel, and Steve. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. And somebody out there is probably talented enough, Peggy, they could take that whole string of names and turn it into music. <laughs> That's sure a challenge. <laughs> okay, what about a couple of questions? We had a, a couple of viewers asking, is the location of this pyramid close to where HARP is located? No, HARP, the High Altitude Auroral Research Project that goes back uh, 20 years, I think. That's in Gakona, Alaska. And if you think of our maps, and here's Anchorage down here on the bottom. And to you, this would be east and this would be west. Gakona is 200 miles to the east of Anchorage, where it appears that the most information about the Dark Pyramid is you go from Anchorage and you come up like you'd be going to Fairbanks and you cross an area that's just a little west of a straight line between Anchorage and Fairbanks going west and that's Mount McKinley or Denali as a marker. Then the two or three people have said they don't have the latitude longitude but they say that they know that it's at least 60 miles further west on a bearing toward Nome. A bearing means that would be your site, even though it's way over on the, on the water. So the 60 miles is going further west, and Gakona is all the way 
200 miles from Anchorage East, so they're quite a ways apart. But there is the possibility, uh, Peggy and Eric and Brad and I were talking about this during one of the breaks, is that it, it could be that all of this is, has some sort of a common denominator in advanced intelligences this way. Remember in my documentary on Antarctica that Spartan One specifically said that he had been introduced to our government, our military, being able to move dimensional portals. He talked about uh, the uh, Antarctica had one at the Wilkes Land magnetic anomaly. He talked about having first-hand knowledge. That's what Spartan One says. He has first-hand knowledge that there is a portal in Gakona, Alaska, and that you step into a room or through a door. It's very strange. It isn't lights and all of that. It's, it's walking into some kind of a structure that obviously has frequencies focused on it because all of this has to do with frequencies and magnetic fields. But in Gakona, you can go, he said, with a step through a door all the way to Hawaii and back. So if all of that is true and this huge, huge pyramid, which I personally don't have any doubt that it is deep under the ground in Alaska. If they are part of a grid system, if you think of our whole planet as a sphere and you are an intelligence that knows how to move through portals from one place in time to another, from one dimension to another, that it is used in this universe and other universes to move these vast matter distances because advanced intelligences know how to move from a place in time or a dimension through frequency manip manipulation to a place in another universe or another timeline. That's the concept. The pyramid structure may play a role in all of that, that the pyramid structure didn't begin or end with Earth. There are some people in the human abduction syndrome who have said that the pyramid builders go back maybe a billion, billion and a half years in our Earth time, and that they had a knowledge of spherical geometry, magnetic fields, portals that could move, and that they built whole planetary systems, pyramids on the surface, pyramids below the surface. The placement physically above and below have been compared for me by a physicist as black and white keys on a piano. Each key is a different frequency. Each pyramid on the surface would be a different frequency, interacting with other pyramids below the surface. And that if you know what you are doing, 
if you can do these magnetic field frequency relationships correctly, pyramids above ground, pyramids below ground, portals, you would then have a planet in which the bottom line, as I've been told, is you have total spherical geometry communication. You don't need wires, you don't need digital, you don't need computers. It's probably Tesla, where Tesla demonstrated that he would be able to get sound or light right out of what would seem like the atmosphere. And the other part of it is energy. Uh, Tesla had the concept as well. But in this grid spherical geometry, if you know what you are doing with the materials, the size, remember the discussion of the Western Electric Engineer that they were specifically had measured 48 degrees at those corners of the big dark pyramid in Alaska, which was, they thought, unusual and had something to do with the pyramid's ability to generate and sustain an increased pressure of energy out of that pyramid when it is somehow turned on. So I find this to set my mind on fire. I wish I had absolutely hard data and proof. But I think as we explore all of this more and more, we will be finding that we are uh, in parallel with new papers and new scientific breakthroughs that are going to be coming and that eventually the idea that Gakona, Alaska has a portal to Hawaii that between the anchorage going up or going toward Fairbanks and then west to McKinley, Denali that there is a pyramid there, it's deep underground. What makes it function? Who turns it on? How do you turn it on? Is it off? I would love to know the answers and hope there's somebody out there in the whistleblower community who could get in touch with me. And Peggy, next week I'm going to have a very, very interesting story. And I will just tease it right now. Imagine, you guys, what if you saw some kind of an army truck and it had a canvas over a really odd, odd shape on the back? That's where we're going next week. Thank you for breaking 140,000. Let's keep going to 150,000 and beyond. I love you guys. Stay safe from COVID.
Thanks for listening to this Earth Files podcast from the edges of science, environment, and real X-Files. Go to www.earthfiles.com to see more than a thousand Earth Files reports with photographs, drawings, and documents. And visit Earth Files every day, every week, for new reports and new podcasts. That's www.earthfiles.com. Yeah.